Hello there, Joe. How are you? Women are people. Um, yeah, I know they are. That wasn't a question. All people are human beings. Well, that, that's another thing I already know, but what are you doing? I can't believe this. Believe women. All of them? What, <laughs> what about? I'm really struggling with you now. Do better. Well, I want to, but you're ruining everything. And now you appear to be lighting tea lights and putting a face mask on. What are you doing? This is a really narcissistic thing to do in our preamble. Self-care is not selfish. Well, I think you are being a bit selfish because you're saying stupid things that aren't to do with the podcast. Don't read the comments. I'm not reading the comments. I'm making them. What is this? You are more than a digital footprint. Well, I'm going to be less than a digital presence in a minute. The political is personal. That's Catherine McKinnon, yes. Although, isn't that supposed to be the other way around? Stay woke. I think you mean stay awake, but to be honest, I'm too annoyed to sleep right now. Calm the fuck down. Hang on, hang on. I just realised what's happening. Those mindless platitudes are from Lee Stein's novel, Self Care, Not From Your Own Mind. And there's only one reason you could be doing that, because it's time for our third Lee Stein episode. And we're going to talk about poetry, satire and the pandemic with Lee Stein. That's right. Educate yourself. Isn't this exciting? <laughs> it's like, wow. is, isn't this exciting? I got lost in my own maze. <laughs> Remember that? What's that? From S Town. Oh, I thought you were doing your Clarence voice from the Christmas special. Yeah, it is exciting. This, I don't do that. Well, isn't this exciting? Another episode, nay, a pair of episodes with Lee Stein about all things poetic and pandemic. And that rhymes, which we all know, as we all know, poetry must always do, or must it? No, it mustn't. Well, it can do whatever it wants. There's no must either way. So, yes, we will be playing the first half of an interview with Lee Stein, in which we discuss the pandemic and her new poetry collection, What to Miss When, shortly. And it is excellent. So make sure you're in a nice, quiet place, free from distractions for that bit, listeners. And then because we have a lot to say and we also need to frame it, we're going to do a separate episode for the next half of the interview, in which we talk more about the poems in detail and about irony and whether or not irony is dead or not and much more else besides. But don't worry, because you have to wait a whole month to hear that. We're going to release it the very next day. Yeah, that's right. So in the meantime, um, as Adam said, make sure you're in a nice, quiet place, free from distractions for the interview. But while we do the preamble and the introduction, why not go somewhere busy and interesting? And then you won't have to focus too much on that. But first of all, what podcast is this? This is the podcast that is named Smith and War Talk About Satire, in which I, Adam Smith, and you, Joe War. Senior lecturers in English literature, 18th and 19th centuries, respectively and respectfully. Talk about the form, function, future and history of satire in a desperate bid to make the endless, tedious hours between now and our inevitable, respective and respectful demises pass more quickly. That's not the desperate bid that we're bidding for, is it? No, it's to amass quantifiable impact for our research, really. Yes, it is. Um, so what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? So I've been to Scotland um, because I don't know if, well, you know this, Joe, I don't know if listeners do, but I work, one of the things I work on is a, an 18th century newspaper editor, hymn writer, poet, 
activist character called James Montgomery, um, who was writing, write, writing poems and editing radical newspapers at the end of the 18th century. And although he was based largely in Sheffield and imprisoned in York, he was actually from a small Scottish coastal town of Irvine. So I went to Irvine to see where he was born to take some pictures for a potential future project. And that's worth mentioning because Montgomery does come up in the second part of the interview, doesn't he? So it's right. useful to have a bit of context there. It is, yeah. And if anybody wants to find out more about James Montgomery, just Google James Montgomery, Adam yeah. Smith. And there'll be loads of things that come up. Videos, another inferior podcast that I made years ago. Um, so if, you, if your appetite is wet by our brief conversation about James Montgomery with Lee Stein, Google me and James Montgomery together and hours of entertainment await. How lovely. Including, actually, a video uh, with you and Joe where you chair a conversation with me and Hamish Matheson from the University of Sheffield, where we talk about his legacy, the legacy of James Montgomery on his 250th birthday. So it's interesting, isn't it? There's this whole world of other things that I do in addition to the podcast, mm. much like yourself and uh, the Brontes. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think in that, when I'm chairing that discussion, I, I can't remember how I get to it, but I make some sort of analogy between James Montgomery and R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People, but I, fuck knows how we got there, but I did. I re yeah, yes. So check it out. I mean, it's it's radio gravy. It really is. Except you've also got visuals because it's on YouTube. So uh, yeah. yeah, and if you're impacted by that digression into the world of James Montgomery, please do give me a yell. Also, now what have you been doing with the Brontes? Um, I've been thinking about Bronte um, quotes, memes, and misattributions, and um, the way that they find themselves on merchandise, and particularly interestingly, tote bags. Um, and thinking about the tote bag and the affordances of the tote bag and the, the signals that a tote bag sends out and how the various sort of capital that a tote bag confers might intersect with um, signalling your literary affiliations or your affiliations to certain brands and versions of feminism. So, um, yeah, that, that's been nice. Maybe I will go on a tour to Halif at some point. That would be amazing. It does sound like if... Well, if a person were to signal their literary affiliations through the purchase of a tote bag, they would be very likely to put that tote bag on Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, which sort of brings us back to Lee Stein, doesn't it? That you, that you yes, sort it of, does. It, it hollows out literature into a vacuous means of signalling something about yourself. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that's part of what I'm interested in. Like, so when you, when you buy Bronte merch, is what you're advertising something about the Brontes or something about you um, and how do those things then go on to influence one another so what you're lifting from the Brontes to say something about yourself then becomes something that we think about the Brontes and the way that the Brontes are read but um, enough about those dead old women. Well just one more thing about that though um, based on your recommendation yesterday I was listening to the Richard Herring podcast and oh, yeah. the it's got adverts on it for Argos right one of the adverts is um help your child help your child share their personality this this september when they go back to school by buying from our range of frozen and teenage mutant ninja turtle merchandise or something i think it's something like that nothing's going to mark a child in reception out as a true individual like having an arna lunchbox is it oh, well that's exactly what i was thinking there's the, there's so the child can perform their personality by buying merch which is precisely what these adults are doing when they post their Bronte tote bag, isn't it? Do you think there's such a thing anywhere in the world as a James Montgomery tote bag? Not yet, but uh, as soon as I get some funding, 
I mean, I'm not against milking that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what I would buy a tote bag of. Yeah. Lee Stein's What to Miss When. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a collection of poems. Did you, what do you think about the collection? We've said that it's excellent already. But yeah, what did you, did you have any um, overall overarching comments? Should we give Lee some, some quotes for her uh, publicity? <laughs> some quotes for her. I thought it was a, a strikingly effective melee of the literary and elusive and the kind of, um, well, I hate this word and I strive not to use it, but actually the, the very relatable from which, which is a really difficult balance, I think, to nail in trying to represent the pandemic in literary form, because, and we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? The trouble with writing about the pandemic is there's an awful lot of things you could go to. I mean, some of these will just be UK examples, but you could say like, oh, you know, remember when we all did clap for the NHS? Remember when there wasn't any flour in the shops? Remember when you had to queue outside the supermarket? And you'd be like, yes, I do remember that thanks for reminding me it was a god awful time but some of it might chime with you um, and kind of bring back that moment but then you're going to have the points where like whoever's writing it diverges in some way and you're like yeah well that's how it was for you because you lived in a massive house with a huge garden in west london or whatever it wasn't like that for me or him or her so i think nailing that balance between things that um not not just kind of name checking shortages and cues and masks but the the sort of nuanced moments of reflection and emotion and um experience but as is as as is the way with good poetry kind of expressing them in new ways that you hadn't thought of or putting them together with other things and pairings you might not have managed for yourself and then seeing connections across literature from like from relatively recent literature and literature from hundreds of years ago. This book deftly hops across and between all of those things in such a in such a way as you don't even notice it on a first reading. And then you you kind of on second and subsequent readings, I think, appreciate the architecture of it all. And that that then you get a whole you get another layer just, you know, just inside your own head, which is great. So yeah, I, th I think it's remarkable and skillful and wonderful. What about you? Yeah, I thought it was good That's as well. <laughs> no, I thought it was good as well. Oh yeah, that was a lovely, I mean, have you, I think you pretty much said everything there. It's interesting with it being a collection of poems that are about the pandemic or, you know, about moments of the pandemic. As you were just saying, we were talking about this the other day, there's this film that's come out, isn't there? Is it called Together? Oh, the Sharon Horgan, James McAvoy film. Yeah. 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 So that came, I haven't seen that, but I watched the trailer and I didn't know, I didn't really have much of a feeling about watching or engaging with literature and drama set during the pandemic until I watched that trailer. And I was about halfway through and I was just like, fuck off. Like it feels, it, it feels really phony. I don't, I know people have had all different experiences in the pandemic. I will have had a very specific experience. I know this is the nature of drama, but it felt to me like they've gone, you know, how can we parachute this story into the into this pandemic thing? And it, it's going to be a very actory, dramery mm. love story. And these things that really happened to us relatively recently, like you said, like the not being able to get food and stuff, that's all just going to be grist of the mill. It's going to be motifs in this quirky love story. And yeah, it felt fake and phony. And, and, a, and I had a visceral reaction to it. It'd probably be all right in a few years. And I'm sure okay. other people feel differently. 
but I immediately, I just thought that is too fake for a real thing that just, just recently happened. Well, you've seen half the trailer, I've seen all of the film, um, and I'm gonna say you're not wrong. Um, so the first, thing, the first thing I thought when I saw it was like, fuck, I've, look, I've just really recently seen those dungarees that Sharon Horgan's wearing. They're popping up in my um, cookies all over the place. And I'm pretty sure that that is the Breton top and the green cardigan that they're paired with on the Balkan website that I've been like off and on quite intrigued by for the last, ooh, say 18 months. So I was like, there's Sharon Horgan in her expensive dungarees in yet another beautiful house. And like with Catastrophe or with this way up like Sharon Horgan looking lovely in a lovely house is like I'm not averse to that whatsoever but it was like it was almost like a kind of aspirational lockdown except that she and her husband have this awful toxic relationship and it does kind of capture very well those first few days when like they're sort of coming into the hallway and slamming the door behind them with like loo roll under their arms and bags of shopping and no one can quite believe this is happening or what is about to happen and you you kind of have that visceral moment of like god yes it was a bit like that and there are some quite powerful moments so like she does a big bit to camera um after a certain thing happens in the plot where she's sort of basically arguing that lockdown happened too late and people died needlessly but she does it she does it pretty well um by talking about sort of statistics and numbers and contagion and so on but i but just to like link this back to the poetry i felt a very different sense of like recognition a, a different pang of recognition with that gosh yeah that that is capturing the emotional um experience of when lockdown first started than is the case in in Lee Stein's poems because they're not documentary and they're not usually sort of straightforwardly descriptive they're yeah I think that phrase you just used aspirational lockdown was very much the vibe that I got from the trailer mm -hmm. for that film and that was one of the reasons why probably I had a bad reaction to it because it made me feel like I, you know, I have, I don't feel like the last year has been any more or less uh, existentially nourishing for me than any other year, really. Like there's been highs, there's been lows, but I don't feel like, I was like, have I wasted my pandemic by not having an emotional awakening or <laughs> not had like an enormous epiphany? Whereas with Lee's poems, it does, it's just, it feels more, um, and I know we're going to talk about this in the interview and I know it's a problematic thing to say, but it just felt more honest and sincere and real. Like these, these mo these lines, these particular phrases that hit upon something, mm. and it and it's it's a thought. It's not like you say it's not a documentary. It's a thought, and I, and I will read it, and I'm like, yes, I did think that, and I do think that, and or I was I had that you know the the example of her doing yoga and noticing the noticing the room isn't very clean or whatever. Yeah, like that's the kind of thing that really that touched me and resonated with me. And, and I, for some reason, I didn't find that upsetting to revisit. That it was more of a kind of comedy of recognition, mm. or a cathartic recognition, rather than what I saw in that trailer where it was like, oh. I mean, obviously the film is, you know, it's a straightforward, mostly realist, but with significant and regular breakings of the fourth wall um, account of, of lockdown. And of things that happened in it and I don't think they have any particular particularly massive sort of existential um, awakenings in it either but I think what the poems do so well is that you'll have a you have something that's like relatively accessible and relatable like 
can you mute yourself in corpse pose, which I think we go on to talk about um, in a little while. But it's not like, okay, and now there's the poem about when, do you remember when we couldn't buy flour? And now there's the poem about, do you remember how we kept ordering things on Amazon Prime? There is always something more to that. Even if it takes as its inspiration, one of those kinds of moments, it does, it does more with that than I can manage to do on my own, in my own mind, whilst thinking or experiencing yeah. those things. And that's, that's what to me is, is distinctive about it. Yeah. Do you um, like poetry in particular? Or no. no. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> well, uh, haven't we already discussed on this podcast that um, one of the moments where I knew my interview at Cambridge wasn't going very well was when I just blithely said that I didn't really like poetry. But I, I still generally am uh, more of a narrative aficionado than, um, you know, certainly like in my period in the Victorian literature, I'm wildly more excited by the narrative of that period than I am by you know Tennyson or um Matthew Arnold or all the rest of those lads and and the Brontes I've got relatively little time for their endless shitting on about Heather um and a lot more for their for their narrative except Wuthering Heights I don't really like that much of their output when you say it like that do I <laughs> I really like their letters there is an issue, isn't there, in that, you know, a lot of poetry taught at universities and stuff historically is dead, canonical poets. Mm. And they're the people I like. I absolutely like that. Like, I've got, I can't get enough of them. <laughs> yeah, you, you like poems, don't you? I do. Yeah, I mean, I was kidding. I was kidding there a little bit. But no, I, I mean, I like, I do like poetry. It's very rare for me to sit down and read poetry for pleasure. Mm. But, um, but when I have cause to read poems, I'm interested in them. I, I do like discussing them and teaching them. I do think, yeah, I mean, I like that they're, they're more open than prose. And I like, you talk about this in the interview, but I like how the way that poems can capture, they can just capture a moment, an idea or a phrase or just a nice collection of words with associations. They, they don't need anything else. Like it can just be two lines and then you, you can, dwell on those two lines for years and you know think about the ramifications the implications of them. so I like that about poetry and I can certainly see in what Lee is doing here by thinking about the pandemic and you know the psychological impact of it why poetry lends itself to that as well. I like I like poetry that you can sort of teach as as an intellectual puzzle so I like teaching sonnets is always quite quite fun and interesting if people get on board with that. I like poetry where you can disinter the different levels it's working on or the way that a word might might mean th uh, three or even four things at once. I'm thinking about the, the sort of structure and how that's being subverted or, or used. I like poetry with a conceit. Mm, yeah. I don't like conceited poetry. That's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, poetry lends itself to satire in interesting ways obviously in the 18th century I think there's quite a lot of satirical poetry I think the conceit of poetry helps with that I think the open-endedness of it helps as well and also the like I was saying the the fact that you can just get a verse that works that absolutely hits the nail on the head um and you can get a lot of bad satirical poetry in the 18th century James Montgomery wrote a considerable amount of it um but if you go to sort of like Pope and Swift there's oftentimes a specificity in the target, it's like someone has done something that's made them write a line. 
but then also an, a general applicability of it. So it's almost like you can transplant the specific grievances that Swift and Pope had onto your own situation. I mean, I read lines, I read that stuff often and I'm like, well, that's, that's exactly the problem that I'm having right now. And that's how that person's behaving, even though this was about somebody else 300 years ago. So that I think is something that poetry does well. So if you had to write a satirical poem, what, what would it be about? What form would it take? What would you satirise and in what vein? I don't, that question wasn't in the script. I'm not sure. Okay, so I think I would probably satirise uh, bandwagoning okay. um, in some way. And I would do it using a dramatic monologue as my form. And I would write it in the voice of someone who was championing these bandwagons. Uh, a, a wide array of them at the same time, a vast array of bandwagons at the same time that actually even contradict each other when you think about it. And yes, and the voice would, oh, I've just realised I've invented Titania McGrath. I? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I would write, I'd rewrite Don Juan, but it would be about Boris Johnson, mock heroic, whilst, it, whilst satirically treating its hero and his background, it would also be like an ironic commentary on the gap between Don Juan and Boris Johnson, but also it would bring to light some of the similarities, which aren't mm. good. That's what I'd do. That's a much better answer. Yeah, you should do. You should just do that. That sounds great. I, I'm not a poet, and I know maybe it. you are. I write one from the perspective of a tree, right? And I think a lot about what it was to be a tree, and also what the world must look like to a tree. How would you like navigate the fact that a tree has no consciousness and can't? reflect on its status as a tree because it doesn't have a mind well it'd be a that's my uh, poetic license isn't it so okay. if it, if a tree had a mind what would it think of humanity and i don't know but it would definitely know about it if it fell over in a wood it'd hear itself fall wouldn't it yeah i fell over and i know that because i heard it and fell i do honestly think if i wrote a poem from the perspective of a tree mm -hmm. saying what what 2020 looked like from the perspective of a tree I reckon I'd be raking it in. Do you, that's a big... How good are you thinking this poem's going to be? Do you know what kind of tree it should be? A weeping willow. And it'd be a like weeping for all the sort of sins of humanity and it would be like looking out on... Because weeping willows, like, they grow next to streams, don't they? And it would look at the polluted stream and it would think about how everything had gone to shit and all its brothers had been cut down to make McDonald's. We'd have 12 stanzas and every stanza would be a different month of 2020. Right. So sort of as it gets to like the third and fourth stanza, the tree's just like, it's very quiet now. I quite like it. I've been left alone. And then by stanza five, it'd be like nature has come back and is reclaiming it because humanity is the virus. I've just mm. seen a fox disturbed. Yeah. And then, and then as it got to June, everyone starts eating out to help out in it. The tree would be like, oh no, the virus has returned. It's the second wave. But the second wave isn't the virus, it's the people eating out to help out. So you can see, I could sort of, mm. I, can, I can work in. I think it'd be in The Guardian. I think I'd be in the, I think it'd be published in The New Statesman within weeks. <laughs> Is it, I mean, would a tree care that much if everybody was eating out to help out or, or indeed if there was a second wave? It would be like, oh, my friend's being cut down to make Greg's packets again. It'd be like, <clears throat> oh, I can't breathe because all the cars are driving around again. There was a few months there where I didn't have this problem. And, oh, look, my willow's gone in the water that's got petrol in it because the boats are speeding past again. That didn't happen for a little while. Mm. And, um, yeah, and 
and it, it going like that. And then just as humanity is emerging, like the end of War of the Worlds from the virus, thinking it's all sorted because they've had their two vaccines, the irony is, the satirical punch of the poem is that the tree's fucked again. Like it, it had almost recovered and then the human virus has decimated it. Mm, maybe you could call it photo forward slash synthesis. Yeah. Well, so perhaps listeners could let us know what do they want to see? Joe's Boris Johnson Don Juan or Adam's poem about a tree? This is like a Patreon um, booster, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they don't even have to, um, they don't have to do anything. Target. Your friend has to text you and say which one. <laughs> <laughs> if we hit our impact target of getting three responses to this question of which one. <laughs> That's our stretch goal. That's our stretch goal. Then we'll um, we'll do it. So yeah, three just three or more people tell us how this podcast has affected them. Joe or I, depending on how you vote, will write a satirical poem. I love it. That's brilliant. But I mean, we should say at this point, and this uh, leads us nicely into the interview. It is like it's a given those poems will be bad because we don't do that. We we can't do that. So we're going to talk Lee Stein, who is and can and has. Before we do that, um, is there anything else you want to say? as a preamble? Well, just a couple of things that we talk about when we're discussing things with Lee, which are part of internet bullshit uh, world, the, the world of internet bullshit, aren't they? And they might not actually be, and then there's also, there, it's American again. So it's American things in the world of online bullshit. Yeah, there's a couple of things that the regular listener might not be aware of. But she refers to, offhandedly refers to the Alison Roman incident. Mm. Um, and sure, looking at our demographic based on the stats we get from Anchor, 65% of our listeners are from the UK. I don't know how much of a British reputation Alison Roman has got. So who is that? What's an Alison Roman? Um, okay, so she is, let me just get this right. So she is uh, the it girl of the food world, according to this article that I've got in front of me. Um, so she was a chef and a columnist. She's published cookbooks. She was in a certain amount of trouble for her turmeric and coconut chickpea stew, which seemed a little bit appropriative of culinary traditions that she doesn't kind of have a... A background in and then she was in an interview in the new consumer last may and she started being um derogatory about other celebrities capitalizing on their fame via the means of merch so back to what i was talking about before so uh, marie kondo had recently started like a line of products um, and romans uh, like criticizes her for that and Chrissy Teigen also who is um, another American she's a she's a model she hosts tv shows she's uh, she blogs about food and so on and she had also launched um, some merch and Alison Roman was somewhat scathing about that too Chrissy Teigen like responded to these comments um, and sort of just saying she was she was disappointed that Roman had had talked about her in those terms. And one of the kind of aggravating factors here is that the people who blog about lifestyle things or do you have Instagram accounts about them are mostly white. So Alison Roman, it's been suggested, like could have gone after Gwyneth Paltrow, for example, but she didn't. She went after Chrissy Teigen and Marie Kondo, if you perceive what she did as going after them. So yeah, she was all of a sudden in quite a lot of trouble after those comments. And that was a big flare up just over a year ago. She apologised grovelingly for doing that. So as a shorthand for Lee, Alison Roman equals cancel culture but also girl boss yeah 
promote capitalism and groveling apologies in the face of cancellation. So that's good. Yes. Um, something that I refer to in re reference to something that Lee's talking about is the disgusting worms phenomena that happened on the internet. So this was a big deal for about a news cycle where someone called David Bowles, B-O-W-L-E-S, did a, a vitriolic Twitter thread about how people need to stop going on about the importance of canonical literature and just accept that it's dead and gone and is of no use to anyone in a pedagogical sense and should focus on uh, young adult fiction that's representative of different identity categories and communities and experiences. So uh, can I just read some of this out? Because it is, it is extraordinary. Yes, please do. So we don't need, this is from his Twitter thread, and this went viral. We don't need the old books, y'all fools. In fact, studies have shown repeatedly that forcing kids to read well outside the zone of proximal development, books that have no relevance to children's lives actually hampers their literacy. It raises their effective filter, turning them against reading and writing. This is especially true of children from communities of color, where different dialects of English or different languages may be pr the principal means of communicating. Literature that isn't even written in the present day vernacular, in exclamation marks, target dialect, consigns them to failure, caps lock. There is nothing inherently important about your goddamn favorite classics. Have you read The Tale of Genie, Journey to the West, Popol Vuh, Ramayana? No, then please shut the fuck up. You know a tiny fucking sliver of the world's literature, ignorant assholes, you disgusting worms. I can read in 12 different languages. I have an MA in English and a doctorate in education. And even I think the classics are shit for modern kids. You're not on my level, trust me. So take a motherfucking seat and leave my people alone. You want your own children to read the classics? Buy those books for them, read them, read them with them like you do whatever scripture you hold dear. Ain't nobody stopping you, friends. But this pearl-clutching and brow-beating, it needs to stop. You look petty, cruel, small, especially when you propose we force the canon on children from oppressed, underrepresented groups. Right, so that's what that was all about. Did we discuss that very glancingly in the interview. Yes. What is an op-ed? So if you haven't come across the, ter the term op-ed, if you think about... Um, in the Saturday or Sunday Times or the Guardian on Saturday or the Observer on Sunday, um, where they'll have like a longer essay that's a, a think piece essentially, generally designed to provoke opinion and comment. I think it's called op-ed because it's opposite the editorial of a of print media. So it'd be from somebody who isn't on the editorial team of that particular um, newspaper or journal, but a kind of, lengthy um argument that is that that's a long form think piece perhaps does that work as a definition i think that works really well yeah so i think that's everything that listeners need to know before listening to this part of the podcast anything else we want to say before we play it what's an oreo no not really well i think we'll say now before the first of these two interviews that it's just worth repeating again that when we interview people we give them nothing <laughs> like we we can't um we, do, we don't pay our guests and they they appear on the show just out of the goodness of their hearts and we always massively appreciate it but we appreciate it perhaps even more than usual on this occasion because we were both having a bit of a nightmare scenario with recording with our patchy wi-fi with sound at various points and lee was 
incredibly gracious and patient while we got that sorted out. So there is just one point in this interview where I'm going to pop up and clarify um, some, some way that the conversation's moved on because it's not clear because that was a glitchy point in the connection. But um, yeah, other than that, hopefully we've, we've tidied it up. I think we'd just like to take this moment to say a particular thank you on that. Thank you, Lee. Um, and for those people who haven't, who don't know who Lee Stein is and haven't listened to the previous two episodes where she featured on our podcast, Lee Stein is the author of five books, including the novel Self Care, which we discussed last summer, um, another poetry collection called Dispatch from the Future. She's also written op eds for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Allure, Elle, The Cut, Salon, and Slate. She's a recipient of an Amy Award from Poets and Writers, and The Cut named her Poet Laureate of The Bachelor, which is a reality TV program not unlike yes. Love Island, but focused on the men, isn't it? So um, that's who Lee is. Let's. Should we play the tape? Let's do it. Just this last couple of days, I've been listening to, for the first time in my whole life, uh, an episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, because he was talking to Jesse Single and I wanted to listen to it. I'd like, they don't edit it. I mean, it must be edited a bit, but like they go to the toilet and stuff. They like, they leave the room, they come back in the room. It's extraordinary. I don't know how, like, the stamina to do like four days a week of three hour interviews. Can you yeah. imagine? Yeah. And I guess if you're being paid millions, like you could imagine. Yeah. But they're like, obviously just getting wasted and stuff. And I was like, we impose so many rules on ourselves, don't we? We try and <laughs> we don't get, we're not tripping balls. We don't go to the toilet and Joe Rogan just does whatever and is, makes millions from it. So fascinating stuff. The rules do not apply. <laughs> we can only wonder can't we we're delighted to welcome you back lee it's we spoke to you a year ago about your satirical novel self-care and got two whole episodes out of that which was amazing and we're here today to talk about your collection of poetry what to miss when so we yeah loads of questions but i'm going to start with kind of an obvious boring one um if that's okay which is about the form and about why poetry. I taught some of these poems on a module that I teach second year literature students called Sick Novels. And we were talking about the COVID context and they all agreed there's no way they'd want to read a COVID novel right now. And that they felt it was just far too soon for kind of narrative of this epidemic. But we did have some really good conversations about the poems. So if I could start with a sort of fairly basic question and ask, why poetry? How do you think that works to represent and engage with this moment we find ourselves in? That's a great question. And it's actually, I don't know that I chose poetry as much as poetry chose me. Poetry was my first love as a writer. It's what I started writing as a teenage girl. And I loved reading the confessional poets like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Um, when I was a depressed teenager, these were very influential on me. And so poetry was always second nature to, to me as a young person and as a young adult. And I wrote a lot of poetry in my 20s. My, my second book was a book of poems that came out in 2012. And then I stopped writing poems for like a decade. And I thought I had lost that part of my life, that part of my brain. It felt like a, like a room in my brain that was locked and I didn't have the key anymore. I just didn't think like in poetry. I thought in tweets. So I think... I think Twitter is actually connected because I would I would get a line and instead of putting it in a poem, I would tweet it. So I lost poetry. I thought it was lost to me forever and I was just a prose writer. And then I decided to stop drinking alcohol in March of 2020, about 
two weeks before my state, Connecticut, I'm on the East Coast, before our lockdown. So about two weeks before lockdown, I was frustrated with how much I was drinking. I decided to stop drinking for 30 days and see what would happen. And 11 days later, I wrote a poem for the first time in 10 years. So the poems came back to me. Um, poetry has always felt very in, in, intuitive, instinctive. It's like it's like I was a musician, how musicians hear music. Like I hear poetry in a way that's different from my prose. So I just started writing. And I think the form of the poem is like it's like a little vessel or a little container. So it actually became the perfect container to cap these snapshots of life in lockdown during the pandemic. Because I think you're right, like to sustain the narrative of a novel as you're living through it would be too difficult. You, you would need hindsight to write a novel. You would need hindsight even to write a memoir. A memoir is written retrospectively, not in the moment. A memoir is written by looking back at something. So these are not memoir. They're, I think they're more like diary entries, but they're obviously composed and crafted. It's not literally my diary. And we'll talk more about that in the layers of satire or irony. But I think they are snapshots of an unfolding catastrophe. Yeah, I th and I think that's that's the kind of impact. Well, speaking personally, that's the kind of impact they have on a reader as well, isn't it? Because we've all gone through so many different moods and emotions and phases in all of this. Like, can you meet yourself during corpse pose? I I think that probably resonates with so many people that that exact experience. But then there are also the kind of darker moments or the moments when you're just thinking about. TV or alcohol or missing the times before. So it, it, it works in, in that way for the reader as well. But it's interesting that it kind of arose more out of, a, out of the context, it sounds like, of sort of pausing on drinking for a bit rather than, oh, I'm going to turn consciously to poetry now because this isn't a time for narrative. I was totally shocked that this happened. It's almost like there was a part in my brain that I was using every day to ask myself, will I drink here? Will I drink there? What will I drink? Like, I didn't realize how much, and, and I, don't, um, I, I don't think I had a substance abuse disorder. I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't drinking like a bottle of wine a night, but it was taking up so much brain space that yeah. once I took away the question, I had all this space to think about other things. Yeah, yeah I was just gonna say, I had the opposite experience where I got like halfway through lockdown one and I started to worry that I wasn't drinking enough. I was like, I haven't, because I was like, I'm not bringing drink into the house and I'm not going out for it. And I was like, it's been, it's been six weeks since I, is that unusual? Um, whereas I know that other people were saying they were drinking too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was surreal to watch because as I was writing this, these poems and as I was not drinking, I was watching everyone I know joke about like, what time do we start cocktails today? Like it's 2 p.m. too soon. And there was like a, a grandmother that went viral in New Jersey for her quarantini that was like the size of a head. Like there were all these jokes about drinking, drinking. It was like the main pastime. And I know for a lot of people who are sober and who have been sober, you know, much longer than me, they, they, they're already used to this. They've already lived through this, you know, the way, the way we talk about alcohol and the culture. But to, to me as, as a newbie at the time, it was um, quite shocking. It was interesting hearing you talk about when you'd have an idea for a, a lyric, you'd do it as a tweet before you rediscover poetry. Because that it, there is something about the lyric as a form, isn't there? That it, and it's the same in songs and in poetry that you can capture a perfect idea in isolation. And when I started reading the collection, there are there are just these zingers. There are these amazing lines. But there's a really early line when it's something like, I took the high road for three years, but the oxygen's too thin up there. And I was like, that's just a, it's just a great line, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the kind of poetry I like to read too. I mean, I like to read um, these kind of 
you know, I, I kind of like to read poetry that's like on the border between stand-up comedy and like uh, lyrical poetry. Like Mark Leidner is another poet that I think is, um, stands across that border. And I, I really, I, I want to write poetry that's accessible. I like reading poetry that's accessible. You know, I think a lot of people are afraid of poetry because they think there's some like, there's some code or some language you have to learn first before you read a poem. And then it's a puzzle you have to decode where I, I like coming to poetry. That's like, you can read it and get something on the first read. And then if you read it again, you get more. And if you read it a third time, you get more. Like I love a poem like that. What do you see as the relationship between poetry and satire in this collection? So did you, does poetry lend itself well to the satirical task or did you find there's potential catfalls or challenges or risks associated with attempting satire in a piece of contemporary poetry? in the current climate. So I'm so glad to be back on this podcast because you two are like the smartest readers of my work on the planet. But I didn't even realize the poems were satire until you DM'd me on Twitter. And then I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like, but it didn't occur to me that I was writing in this like specific form. So I was thinking about this question before we talked and I think it's, I love mimicry. I love um, eavesdropping. I love watching strangers. And then I love mimicry and I've always loved mimicry. I wanted to be an actress as a, as a teenager. And for me, fiction and poetry is where I feel I can wear a mask and kind of perform these other voices and I'm permitted in a way that I wouldn't do it in nonfiction. Can you even do nonfiction satire? I guess you could. <laughs> but um, writing persona poems, like there are poems in the collection from the point of view of a reality TV star or as an influencer where I'm writing in these voices. And I feel like the it's so easy to do that with anyone that takes themselves too seriously. These women that, you know, do their lifestyle content on Instagram and then they have so many fans that are like, love you, but you watch it and you're like, this is hilarious. They don't, they have no self-awareness. So writing, writing in their voice um, is just joyful and, and for me as a writer. And it, it, I, feel, I feel like it's per permitted to me. It's interesting because I think that you, you said something like that last time we interviewed you, that you liked kind of inhabiting different voices as a, that that's something that, that you've always been drawn to and that you enjoy doing. And that's kind of the joy of writing. And where in self-care you have like, in a really sustained way, you kind of capture that goopy girl boss voice and idiom throughout the whole text. Whereas I guess in the poems, there's, there are a lot more voices that you can jump through and move to in one poem and then another. But there's also, there's maybe like potential in, in some poems, at least for, there's also a kind of voice that's above all of that, isn't there? There's which, whereas in self-care, you're, inhabiting the narrators in the poetry I feel like there's a intermittently a sort of voice that's above that and that's perhaps more visibly judging that yeah that you're saying there's like a master persona in the poems that there's like this this master voice above all the voices is that right <laughs> like I see myself working in this kind of post-confessional mode as a feels like I'm really telling you all my deepest secrets but of course, I'm also drawing from all these pop culture references and I'm kind of playing with what's really me and what are these archetypes or what are these characters and touch points and cultural reference points. Um, a lot of people that have been reading the book already have been saying things like, you know, I think this book was only written for me. I'm the only one that's going to get all these references. But that's really funny to me because I think actually like millennials, like we have all the same cultural touch points, like any millennial who was online during the pandemic is going to get that I'm writing about the Alison Roman cancellation or whatever, like we all lived through it together. Yeah, but there's an interesting balance there, isn't it? Because you've got, I mean, particularly say um, this time last year, 
you could say Tiger King to anyone and everyone's in the Tiger King moment, for example. But then, and you do, you have those touch points, which I think lots of us will remember as characterising our COVID experience. But then it's also a really literary collection, isn't it? So New York Magazine described it as highbrow brilliant. And you you alluded to and directly referred to a really kind of diverse range of writers. So can you talk a bit about that? How do how do the literary precedents feed into to what you're doing? That's a great question. Again, I think, okay, I'll answer it this way. So in school, I hated required reading. I didn't want to read any classics. I only wanted to read what I wanted to read. I dropped out of high school at 17. I have a very unusual um, educational path. I'm an autodidact. I'm really self-taught. And I also feel very self-conscious about all the classics I have not read. So I have a chip on my shoulder feeling like I should be more well-read, but also resisting anything that was assigned. And so I think I this is again kind of like a tongue-in-cheek thing that I that I choose these classics that I think everyone knows. So I, I'm trying to reference the poets that I think my readers are most aware of. Hello. Just sorry to pop up in the middle of this um, interview. This is just one point where the recording went a bit squiffy, so I just need to contextualise that at this point, Adam and Lee move on to talking specifically about W.B. Yeats's poem, The Second Coming. Hope that's clear. Bye. Yeah, and that poem is also famous because the Joan Didion collection, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, comes from a line in that poem. So I just kind of like this, um, it's like an infinite regression, or it's like a a Russian nesting doll that it's just inside the other, inside the other, inside the other. And I love, um, yeah, I love just making making something new out of what's come before and and welcoming the reader in in that way. Um, by by taking something that they're familiar with and then kind of turning it slant, as Emily Dickinson would say. <laughs> tell the truth, but tell it slant. Yeah, I mean, I think I do think it's really interesting whenever we talk, when you sort of say you, you're not, you don't think of these as particularly satirical texts when you start out, because not only are the mechanics that you use screamingly satirical in a sort of classical sense, but also like this this collection references Parasite, the film Parasite, in sort of like the third, it's about the third in the collection, isn't it? And use parasite and the satire in that film to understand what's happening in the moment and then a few poems later you mentioned Jojo Rabbit which was another big satirical film from 2019 so I mean how self-conscious was that positioning of the text? Well I think we've talked about this before but but satire is such a perfect vehicle for writing about class Mm. and so when I figured out that the Decameron was going to be a kind of framing device I'd never read the Decameron before because as I said I haven't read a lot of classics Um, But I looked at it during the pandemic and I knew that it was about the plague in Italy. I didn't realize that just the beginning is about the plague and the rest of it is this kind of frame narrative of these like young singles that go to the countryside to pass the time with these stories um, to escape death or to avoid thinking about death. But that's also about class. When I read Boccaccio's introduction, I was like, oh my God, it's like all the poor people in the city are drinking themselves to death. They can't escape the contagion. And if you have money and you have a villa, you go to the country and you go to your villa to hide out from the from the plague. And that's exactly, you know, Parasite is like such a brilliant film. And it, sh- it shows, <laughs> at least in America, if not the world, that they're either the people that employ the servants or the people that are the servants. I mean, that's it, right? Um, are you working in the service industry or are you, you know, going out and, and having people do your nails and clean your house for you? So... 
a lot of my poems are about class. I have a poem about um, influencers fleeing the city after I read this piece in the New York Times. I, I almost quoted from it in the poem, but I didn't need it. But there's just this influencer that said something to the effect of, um, I know about the stay at home orders, but like the governor doesn't understand like the situation for people like me. Meaning people like me, like I'm an influencer, like I can go wherever I want. It was just so self-absorbed and, and um, tone deaf that I had to write a poem about it. And I saw this, I mean, I work as a book coach, so people hire me to help me with their books. And during the pandemic, I realized, oh, all my clients who can afford to hire me as their personal coach, they all have second homes. <laughs> Even the ones I didn't realize they had second homes, they would be zooming in from a new location. I was like, oh, of course, you know. So I, I was very aware of the, the class differences um, in response to the, the pandemic. And I was very, um, I don't know what the word is, but like when I read, just reading about like, you know, Florence in 1348 was going through the same thing. It's a little bit mind blowing. Yeah, I was just looking at that poem and the lines, the girls spend a fortune on lashes and a fortnight drinking red wine from copper glasses, confessing malaise in sexy baby voices to pass the time, while three hot guys weep openly, not because of plague, but because they don't think anyone can see them in their pods. And um, yeah, yeah, I think I agree, it's about classes. <laughs> and I mean, Obviously, you were already interested in that, in self-care and and generally in, in other writing. But I suppose the, the, the whole, the COVID year and a half has really, in so many ways, put class under the spotlight, hasn't it? In terms of who can afford to stay at home in lockdown and who has to go out there and bring them their food and their drink and their supplies and their Amazon deliveries so that they can stay at home in lockdown in perfect comfort and I think yeah that that's something I don't, something that we need to go on talking about isn't it and yeah and it comes up comes up in loads of places here doesn't it yeah and another thing that 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 might be relevant is um you know since I stopped writing poetry and I started writing poetry again I also became someone who writes more op-eds. And so something that I worked on with my editor of this collection is some of my poems were like too much like op-eds. Like they were too, they were too like angry opinion pieces. And she had to kind of help me like tweak them and make them a little more um, subtle or imagistic or um, surreal rather than my just uh, my opinions. I, I wrote one about woke capitalism that was just like an angry tweet thread in verse that we ended up cutting from the collection. It just did it, it just didn't work. So anything where I got too soapboxy, but it's interesting to me to work in all these different forms. Um, but I was thinking even like a modest proposal. I mean, that's like an op-ed. It's like, it's like Absolutely. playing on the form of an op-ed. I was just gonna say like in the 18th century, which is obviously where I spend most of my time, a lot of the satirists, they, they write satirical poetry like Jonathan Swift, but then they, they're also essayists and they write journalism and stuff. And the second time we spoke to Andrew Doyle, we sort of said to him, like on the one hand, you do all of this satirical Titani McGrath stuff, but also you write all these written books now, like entire books that are basically op-eds. Like how do you decide when to do satire and when not and what do you see as being the relationship between the two and i think he's basically said is you just choose the form that's appropriate for the issue you're talking about like there are, if you want to make a rapid point he'd do it as a joke if you wanted to sort of fully expand on something he'd write it as an essay but i mean do you feel there are moments where poetry is the only form or the most appropriate form to make the point you're making. I think I think poetry is fun because it can be sneaky. Like I'm almost wondering if I can like sneak some ideas into someone. Um, and at the end, the very last poem of the book, I'm really quoting from Boccaccio's um, conclusion to the Decameron where he, he says, and I quote him something like, um, there will be those who say I didn't perform the correct politics. 
at a time when people were going around with their breeches on their heads um, to show they were the most virtuous, which is hilarious because there's all these jokes about masks. Um, but one of the early reviews of my book on Goodreads was by a reader who said, you know, I read the book, some were funny, but, you know, um, some of the poems, like, I don't know if Lee Stein is the right person to be talking about these things. And I think she means some of my little critiques of the far left or woke culture. And I thought that's so funny because I literally put that in the last poem. <laughs> like, I literally acknowledged my critics in the same way you would in an op-ed and say there are going to be people that say this book doesn't have the correct politics. And she just fell right into the trap. There's something really, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think there's something really interesting going on with this question of sort of relevance and relatability. Because... So one of my favorite poems in the collection is Outside Time. And it sort of starts with that line where it says to me like, some of my critics say that this might not be, well, my poetry isn't relevant or something like that. And there is this tyranny of relatability and relevance and everyone has to see precisely their own experience in what they're reading or you have to write something that's exactly the experience of the people represented. So there's sort of that going on. And I think a note of caution around that, but then something that you do, you are really adept at is making these historical texts quite relatable finding these continuities and sort of suggesting well actually this is this is why this text has something to say so I mean how self-conscious was was that you know I also think it's just like getting older I think like as a young person this is why I buckled against required reading I was just like what is the relevance of Great Gatsby to my life you know it just didn't seem um, without a, and I know a lot of great teachers can make things more relevant to young people. I think I just didn't have like the amazing teacher, but I didn't get it. I thought, why do we have to read these like dead books? <laughs> um, but but someone like Sylvia Plath that wasn't assigned for some reason, her voice like just like jolted me with electricity like that felt so relevant to me. So now that I'm aging, <laughs> um, I do see the historical parallels so much more clearly. And I look at someone like Walt Whitman. I mean what a queer in more ways than one odd poet and what a self-promoter like what a provocateur um the the content that the the subject matter he was writing about in the 19th century was just like wild um but now we look at him as like an old dead white guy you know um how could he be relevant today or i was also thinking i tried to write a poem i couldn't I couldn't get it into a poem again. I think it was like a failed op-ed about the obscenity trials over Allen Ginsberg's Howell um, mm. and how that book was seen as so obscene that it, it, it went to court about whether um, City Lights could, could publish it. And when I think about that today, you know, the, the kind of fights that we're having in the literary culture about what's, what's permissible and what isn't and, and what's cultural appropriation and who should be writing which stories. And I look back at that where they were just fighting to just have like Allen Ginsberg be allowed to write about gay sex. That's the fight we were having, you know, 70, 80 years ago. It's so interesting how it has, how it has changed and, and who the gatekeepers have become, how people have become the, um, the literary community itself have almost become gatekeepers, even as they rail against the gatekeepers of traditional publishing. I was just remembering that Twitter thread, the, um, listen to me, you disgusting worms. Did you see that about the way thing it was just- Oh, yes. Me. Yeah. I mean, what's that if not, that was hella gatekeeping, wasn't it? Yeah. Or an attempt at it quite aggressively. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that in, in YA Twitter where it's, um, you know, we must protect the children. We must protect the children, but it's, it's grownups arguing with each other. And also a lot of people who read young adult literature are themselves adults, which yeah. is a part of the problem as well. I really enjoyed talking to Lee Stein today, Joe. I you? really enjoyed talking to Lee Stein today. And the best thing is, it's not over because we're going to play the rest of the interview in 
an episode that is coming shortly. And what are we going to talk about in that one? Well, we're going to talk about cancel culture. We're going to talk yep. about Tiger King. We're going to yep. talk about... Karen's. Karen's. We're going to talk about all these <laughs> culture wars issues, aren't we? Hot, hot button culture wars issues that bring the listeners in. Yeah, um, internet bullshit. <laughs> internet bullshit. And more poetry. And yeah, just more from Lee. And we'll have a little chat about Bo Burnham as well. Because that's somebody yeah. who comes up, isn't it? Yeah. So join us again ASAP. And in the meantime, if you want to follow Lee on social media, she's on Twitter at Rhymes with B. And you can pre-order, or actually now you can, by the time you hear this, you can order her book from all of your main retailers. Um, the book's called, as we've said, What to Miss When? And it's RRPs at £11.49. pence. So get on it. Yes, get on it. But for now, get off it. Yeah. Till tomorrow, sit up. Shut up. And um, we'll, we'll say all the stuff about how lovely listeners can get in touch with us next time, shall we? In the next episode, yeah. So join, yeah. join us again tomorrow for all of that, all of the business. Yeah, all just of the house- you could hold off on getting in touch with us to let us know this has impacted you just for a day. We'd really yeah. appreciate it. Because I know you're all always keen to let us know about the impact, but just yeah. hold your horses. So 24 hours from now, we'll be talking to you about Lee Stein, Poetry, Culture Wars, Bo Burnham, Burger King, and all the housekeeping business and how to get in touch and tell us you've been impacted. But until then, sit up. Go away. Shut up. Go away. And eat my satire. Believe women. Bye. Brilliant.